Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Jack Symes, a PhD student at Durham University. We'll be talking about Jack's work in public philosophy on his podcast, The Panpsychast, and his book series, Talking About Philosophy, as well as his doctoral research on the evil god, Challenge. Jack Symes, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Much of your current work comes under the uh, banner of public philosophy, so I'd be interested to hear what your first forays into public philosophy look like. So I think the first thing I did in public philosophy is the same thing I'm doing now, which is the Panpsychast. So we've been hosting it for I think eight years now. We're in our eighth year of the show, and it's myself, Andrew Horton, Oliver Marley, and now Rose de Castellan and a bunch of backroom people as well, Lucy James, Jonathan Hawkins, Tyler Hislop. And we've kind of grown into quite a big team that we're still producing an episode every other week. And it's a informal and informative philosophy podcast that's aimed at everybody from people teaching at universities and researching these topics, the forefront of the research, all the way to people who have got no background in philosophy whatsoever. And we hope all of our episodes take people from the questions you begin asking when you start doing philosophy, and hopefully by the end of an episode, leave them with the cutting edge research, like what people are doing at the moment in the in the field. So yeah, the Panpsychast for nearly eight years. And on top of that, we've started doing this book series and live events and things like that as well, and regular Q&As with our audience too. So yeah, it's really exciting that it's, it's all carries on growing from this from the same project we got started all those years ago. That sounds so great. And just this, we'll get to that book series in just a moment, but I'd be really curious to hear what inspired you to do the Panpsychast. Yeah. At the time, what we found was a lot of the philosophy podcasts that existed catered to a certain audience with people who already had a good background in the field. Um, we thought we could do something which blended a little bit of informality and humor with the uh, new A-level specification in particular in the UK, which was coming out of the time in religious studies. And there was a bunch of content there which teachers and students were quite unfamiliar with because the course was so different before. So the A-level for those outside of the UK is students typically 16 to 18. It's the qualifications they do before they go off to university. And they, they do a paper on philosophy of religion, moral philosophy, uh, developments in Christian thought or Islamic thought or Hindu thought or one of the other six major world religions. And yeah, we wanted to just create something which people would want to listen to, that we could put all of our research into an episode and then leave it there as like a like a time capsule of knowledge. Like we do so many different topics in philosophy when you're teaching it or researching it. Uh, I don't know about you guys, my memory's absolutely dreadful. So what's really nice about it is like having a permanent record of what we were thinking at that point in time and why do we start it because it would be fun and we thought that people would enjoy it too and fortunately we were proved right yeah i mean there's i think there's no better reason to start a podcast that it would be fun and also speaking to the idea of like well you know there's a there's a niche that your podcast covered there's a niche that our podcast tried to cover too which was trying to talk to graduate students who don't mm. often get solicited for their opinions on podcasts so you know i think we 
we've really, we have like a nice sort of relationship between what we're trying to do, I think, uh, which is this idea of public philosophy, I think. So yeah. could you tell us what you find to be distinctive about public philosophy as opposed to private philosophy? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the first thing, yeah, I think what what you guys are doing is great at the Philosopher's Nest. We get a lot of people writing when we ask who they would like us to interview. And a lot of the time they get, we want early careers, postgraduates, PhDs. We want to hear what people are interested in who aren't just the the great philosophers, the established philosophers, the pale, male and stale <laughs> philosophers that everyone has to study. So. Yeah, I think there's loads of really interesting and cool research going on in postgraduate philosophy, and I think you've, you're serving that that market well, that niche well. What's distinctive about public philosophy? Uh, there's a load of things, really. I suppose the biggest one is that you need to get rid of as much jargon as possible. You need to speak as clearly as you can. You need to make sure that the relevance of what you're talking about is really obvious. And when you're doing academic philosophy, you can assume a big background subject knowledge. You don't need to sell the subject as much. You're trying to make progress with the question itself. And that requires a certain methodology, which is very precise, very rigorous, and where every single thing that you say matters and there's no room for being misconceived of what your meaning is. But when you're doing public philosophy, I think the the best way to go about it is to do your best to do those things. But the worst thing you can get is a, a guest on your podcast, or you may have found already yourselves, who who is used to doing academic philosophy and wants to go back and re-record a bunch of content, gets stumbled on the words constantly and goes back and says, can I start that answer all over again? Because they want to make sure that what they say in no context can be misunderstood or overstated or understated. They want to make sure it's absolutely spot on and that's i think dan dennett's got a nice quote somewhere which i'm not gonna be able to remember off the top of my head which is there's a time and a place for numbering your premises and making sure your argument's perfectly valid and sound and and that's not in the public arena of philosophy do your best with it but don't get too upset if you end up speaking a little bit too uh, brashly for the point of making a rhetorical point to get people interested Maybe that's really bad advice. <laughs> and my advice there is stop, don't be so precise, but maybe that's the antithesis to philosophy. <laughs> well, I mean, insofar as that might be a valuable piece of advice, uh, and insofar as there might be different methodologies and ways of communicating as well between public philosophy and maybe when you're writing uh, an article for a journal or for a thesis or, or for whatever other kind of uh, formal philosophical writing you might be doing. Insofar as there are differences there, might that gesture towards perhaps different um, functions of public philosophy versus formal philosophy? And I guess what I'm getting at is I wonder, is a distinctive function of public philosophy its ability to maybe communicate or report findings that have been made in formal philosophy, where formal philosophy is the, is the kind of philosophy that's actually you know, making those discoveries, making those findings? Or can we actually um, explore new ground, come up with new arguments, and uh, discover new findings in the public philosophical arena as well. Yeah, good. That's a nice way of thinking about it, Lewis. And you, okay, you forced me to think about it a bit more carefully rather than just skim over the details, so which is good. So the first thing to say is, yes, a lot of public philosophy, the overwhelming majority relies on important work going on within academic philosophy. And sometimes when public philosophers speak quite dismissively of academic philosophy as if it was pointless, as if it didn't have 
value in and of itself or even in, instrumental value for what they're doing. I think that's wrong because a lot of the time these people who complain about academic philosophy rely on the work in academic philosophy to have their successful careers in public philosophy. But the second thing to say is that, of course, you can find new and valuable insights and arguments and philosophical theorizing within the realm of public philosophy, as I'm sure you you both speaks of your own experiences as two people who are interested in talking to people about philosophy. Most of your ideas come from discussion and debate with other people. It's really hard to do philosophy when you sat there on your own. It's like squeezing blood from a stone sometimes. If you have someone to bounce the ideas back and forth from, to explain things to for the first time, then you start to find out the weak points of your argument, different perspectives on them. And so public philosophy gives you that opportunity, like not like no other. Like think of it like a think of like an academic conference in philosophy. So I'm trying to distinguish academic philosophy like journal writing and and, and thinking alone from uh, the more public or more interpersonal type of philosophy you might do. Like at a conference, right? There's a reason why people present at conferences in philosophy to get other people's perspectives to engage and and try and broaden the horizons and find the weak points in their arguments too. So yes. Public philosophy can do that as that same thing that you can do at a conference or something like that as well. But you also you open yourself up to thousands of people out there in the wider world, often who have great insights to these questions. A lot the reason we're interested in them is the same for a lot of people who will listen to public philosophy. And sometimes, especially with my own research over the last few years, some of the best insights are from people who have never studied that topic before. They just they they can force you to think about things in a way that those who are too close to the problem can't see the big picture. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one thing I've always thought about is just the way in which you know the public perceives philosophers. So, mm. I mean, there's the academic philosopher who, you know, if we if we if we're doing PhDs, we're very familiar with this person who's just, you know, quite like, you know, awkward in their temperament. They spend a lot of time reading and they, you know, engage with, you know, paywalled academic journals that are pretty difficult to read, require a lot of training to understand. And then there's like the sage who comes out into the marketplace and, you know, enlightens people with their ideas, which I think some people have this idea that like philosophers are sort of sages and impart moral advice or 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 wisdoms to people. But then I think like just speaking to you right now, it seems to me that the perception that we're trying to give of public philosophers is not this sage-like thing. We want to undo that. We also want to, I mean, if people think of us as boring academic philosophers, maybe we want to do that too. We want to view ourselves as just like conversationalists that just happen to have this interesting thing to talk about. And we want to engage with the world in that way. So I guess I like the way that you're kind of framing your project. Yeah. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I just want to like, I'm not too sure, right? I think there's there's going to be place. There's going to be different areas of public philosophy that serve different functions, and there's not going to be a one size fits all type of approach to doing it. There's a place for people interviewing people. There's a place for people having discussions and guides to topics. There's a place for audio books and books. There's also a place for people who want to put forward a message to the public and change their perceptions about things. In fact, a lot of really good philosophy the last few years has been of that type. However, there is still a big gap in the in in the public consciousness or in our public square of discourse for philosophers who think carefully about things and also are good at the public philosophy side too. There are very few candidates you can think of who meet who are very good at both. Um, I'm not sure 
whether that there's an, there's an issue in that in and of itself, or whether we are just looking for someone whose skill set is very particular and and um, and they excel in both fields. But public philosophies, in terms of like the podcast revolution or YouTube and all these different mediums, you know, public philosophies had quite the resurgence in the last few years, and it's been taken more and more seriously by people inside and outside of academia. So it's still very early days. And there is, of course, a, another vessel through which you've been doing public philosophy recently, uh, which is the book series that you've been embarking upon. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Of course, again, I'd love to. Uh, thank you for allowing me to plug it as well. Talking About Philosophy is an introductory series of philosophy books aimed at, again, everybody from people who have never done philosophy before, right through to people who are working on these topics at universities. and. Each book is dedicated to a particular philosophical topic. So the first book, which came out in February of last year, which was 2022, is Philosophers on Consciousness, Talking About the Mind. And there you've got a series of interviews and essays from some of the world's leading thinkers in that particular field. And it starts off with the question of why you should even care about consciousness to begin with, goes through all of the major leading theories of consciousness and going which people are talking about in academia. But they're all written to ensure that the reader who, again, who has never came across these ideas can engage and explore with them themselves. And it should leave them at the end with the tools to start discussing and thinking about these questions. So all of the chapters are guided with introductions and concluding remarks and questions to consider recommended readings and they're differentiated so you know, advanced readings intermediate readings beginner readings uh, little info boxes as well as you go like as you'd see in like classic school books but hopefully they're not quite as uh not quite as lame <laughs> as what you used to get in those books at school remember the guy in like the old textbooks who used to wear the sunglasses and had the bandana was that like good <laughs> time like in these old science books in the UK, like you get this like blonde haired looking Chad looking guy who'd just like pop up and be like, Yeah, water's H2O, man. Pretty cool, eh? And then you jump up. <laughs> I can't say I remember the specific I can't guy. Remember that guy. <laughs> it must not have stuck with me. Yeah, maybe your maybe your science books are a bit more advanced than mine. <laughs> than mine. Find me like that. Anyway, the books do have these pedagogical features that make sure that anyone can engage with them. But yeah, and the second book, Philosophers on God, talking about existence, will be coming out later this year in 2023. And again, with the hope is to get everyone everyone working on these topics. So the new book will include people like William Lane Craig, Richard Dawkins, Richard Swinburne, Jessica Frazier. You know, people who the most influential people, hopefully, in philosophy of religion, alongside up and coming philosophers in that area. The latest research again guiding people through that topic and all the different perspectives that people are discussing within it. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. And we'll obviously pop a link in the podcast description with the book. I wanted to note just before before going to our next topic, which is just how did you get Stephen Fry to read your book and give a review? That's that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Well I know he is good friends with Daniel Dennett and some of the other contributors for Philosophers on consciousness, and he at the time I, I heard a few conversations where he's interested in the topic, so I just dropped him an email and asked him if he if he wanted to read it, and that was on the Friday evening, and then on the Saturday and Sunday he given it a read, and then on the Monday morning he got in touch with 
his thoughts on it and he was obviously very kind and that's obviously included on the the blurb of the book and the inside page and yeah it was the highest compliment i could receive really when he, he says some of the wonderful things that he does i think he captured the spirit of the book when he spoke about how uh, like the humor of it alongside the academic philosophy or reading it not having to go back and reread sentences over and over again to understand them i think one of the most important things for my own work and my own writing and philosophy is the most important thing is clarity and just making sure things on the first read read well that there's a nice flow to the sentences that it shouldn't be a chore i really hate reading personally i i, I for obviously for my job i have to read a lot but i don't enjoy the reading part so the hope is with the book series that process of reading something can be an, as enjoyable as possible and i think obviously stephen fry's work tries to do something very similar he takes difficult challenging subjects which people may not be familiar with already and tries to write them in a way that is enjoyable and so i think also stephen's like does anyone not like stephen fry he's absolutely <laughs> wonderful so i thought he captures as well like the union between the the academy and and public engagement and public understanding and he's a respected figure in in that way too so he's the only person i reached out to to ask for the blurb or his thoughts and review of the book and once i had that i was like okay i'm done now there's no <laughs> i i'm not sure where where to go from there the publisher said is there anyone else you want to reach out for 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 blurb or anything like that I said, no I, that's, that's okay <laughs> that'll do with, with no respect with anyone else who may be listening who who does something similar obviously that uh, i'm sure they have great um admiration for stephen fry as well and that's not to discredit anybody else but i just yeah it was really kind of him to write what he did yeah well what a fantastic reviewer to have though I mean, you may wonder it would be even more fitting should he uh, review the second book that you mentioned, um, that on God, as I think he has a, a lot to say um, about religion in the public arena as well. Mm. But segueing into, um, well, I guess the content of that second book, which also formed the content of your first PhD at Liverpool, which you finished last year, having now begun your new PhD at Durham. Um, that first PhD was on the evil God challenge in the philosophy of religion. So could you tell us a little bit about what that challenge is? Of course, can. So it was popularized in 2011 by Stephen Law. It has quite a well, fairly long history. You see strands of it in the work of Descartes and David Hume, William Paley in 1802, and then probably in the 1970s, 80s, a few little papers. But then the interest in it as a topic of research, and it's one of the most popular topics as well. And public philosophy as well say some people who like to discuss the challenge is 2011 stephen law's paper titled the evil god challenge and stephen puts the challenge forward like this he says in a word why should we think it's significantly more reasonable to believe in a maximally good god than a maximally evil god so abrahamic monotheists think that God is maximally powerful, maximally intelligent, and perfectly good. And Stephen comes along and says, well, let's give the theist the benefit of the doubt. Let's pretend for a second that their arguments for the omnipotence and omniscience, the power and knowledge of God, are successful. Well, I can use the same types of arguments for God's goodness, for God's malevolence. And from there, 
he thinks that this constitutes a significant challenge to orthodox monotheism. And so you might run it like this. Like I'll give it in like just a couple of quick sentences, right? So Stephen thinks the challenge is best formulated as follows. The first premise he says is that people typically think belief in an evil god is absurd. He thinks that's obviously the case, and you wouldn't take anybody seriously who said they believed in an evil god. Then he says, once you consider all of the arguments relevant to the reasonableness of both hypotheses, it turns out that belief in evil god is roughly as reasonable as good god. But if they're roughly as reasonable as one another, then belief in good god must be absurd too, because we've, as we've just said, belief in an evil god is absurd. So if you want to overcome the challenge, you have to reject that second premise, says Stephen, and give us a reason for why they're not roughly as reasonable. And so my PhD thesis, originally I started out by defending the evil God challenge. I thought it's a, a really compelling argument. I thought it got to the, it broke the deadlock between theists and atheists. And I was an evil God challenger. And then by the end of my PhD thesis, I turned completely the other way and I ended up defending orthodox monotheism. That's such a crazy change, <laughs> which hopefully we'll probe a little bit further. But I wonder if you can give us a flavor of what exactly, I guess, Stephen Law or Evil God Challenge type arguments. Like, if you can just give us, like, elaborate a little bit more on the sense in which, like, it's reasonable to believe in an evil God or as reasonable to believe in an evil God as a, as a good God. Because I guess right now, the thing I'm thinking is something like, well, the way we think about God is like the maximally greatest being, like he's the best at, at, the, at the properties that we ascribe to him. That's what makes sense for it. And, uh, you know, omnipotence and omniscience makes sense. And then I guess the, does the evil God thing come from saying, well, you know, it's not clear on the morality front why it needs to be the best at benevolence. What's the, yeah, what's the argument exactly out of curiosity? So I'll give Stephen's version of the argument or how the challenger would put it forward. And then I'll hint as to why I think it or where it goes wrong in particular, which you've already alluded to slightly in, in your own question there quite nicely. So Stephen puts it forward like this, right? He goes, well, you think there's a good God. Well, let's assume that God is evil instead. Let's pretend that God is evil instead. And then he uses that to parody or, or show the unreasonableness of some of the moves that the traditional theist makes. So he uses like that. He goes, okay, so let's pretend that God is evil. Well, the evil God challenger faces the problem of good, the mirror version of the problem of evil. So the problem of evil against the good God theist says, you know, why would a perfectly good God allow so many people to suffer horrific natural and moral harms? Well, free will defense says that actually to be able to do horrible things to one another is worth the price because it allows us to have this intrinsic good that's free will. It allows us to make genuinely good decisions. If you never got the chance to help somebody cross the road instead of push them into the road, then you would just be these robots who always did good. And that's not real genuine goodness. To have genuinely good actions, we need the choice to do evil. And that's the price that good God pays to allow for genuinely good actions, allowing us to do evil. You might also think that we've got like character building. So the good God theist says, in response to the problem of evil, well, we have some evils to allow us to develop our moral characters and have genuine opportunities to do good. And you can run a bunch of regular theodicies and defenses like that. And then you've got the evil God hypothesis. The evil God challenger says, I think that God is evil. And you have to respond to the problem of good. 
And you can mirror those same kinds of theodicies and defenses. So to have genuinely evil actions, evil God allows some people to do good and help people cross the road rather than push them in. That's the price evil God pays in order to allow for genuinely horrific, malevolent actions. And it's not a veil of soul making, it's a veil of soul destroying. It's not character making, it's character destroying. Why does God allow us to have children that we can love and cherish us, even though, well, so unfortunately for the great span of human history, we had to watch them suffer and die horrible, painful deaths. Right. Sorry to lower the tone. That hurts. No way. <laughs> so I get for the sake of the listener. Um, both uh, Carl and Lewis were smiling along and enjoying that until <laughs> <laughs> the unnecessary deaths of innocent children. <laughs> Let me try and bring it back to a cheerier note. Okay. So Stephen uses it like that. So my response to the evil god challenge isn't necessarily against Stephen, who has narrowed his scope to say that he thinks the challenge shows that those theodicies and defenses are fairly ridiculous. You wouldn't accept them in defense of an evil God. So why accept them in defense of a good God? And when you run the problem of good against evil God, the problem of evil against good God, you end up with similar reasonable hypotheses, similar reasonable moves. And then he says, well, why consider one more or less reasonable than the other? You can't. They're both ridiculous. And Stephen Law thinks that you can obviously rule out the evil God hypothesis because of the problem of good and the reverse theodicies and defenses are clearly ridiculous. Right? They don't work. So why should we think the same isn't true of the good God hypothesis? Right. I, in my own work, remain neutral on that point. Personally, I don't think it's ridiculous in the same way. I don't think that the traditional theist needs to go, belief in evil God is obviously absurd and ridiculous. I think they can get out the challenge quite easily by just going, oh, no, it's not ridiculous. But I've got other reasons for thinking that the evil God hypothesis is unreasonable, such as the ones that Carl alluded to a moment ago, that to be a perfectly great being involves being good rather than evil and, and the like. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for attributing goodness to God rather than evil. So that hopefully gives a fair representation of Stephen's view with a suggestion of why you might think it goes wrong. Jack Symes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. 